Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our witnesses for being here and look forward to your testimony. Today's hearing is the third in a series of hearings examining the role of the United States in the Middle East. This hearing will, will focus on two related topics, U.S. policy towards our GCC allies and the war in Yemen. In May of this year, the President hosted delegations from six GCC countries in an effort to allay their concerns about the nuclear deal and to reaffirm American commitment to our allies. That was almost five months ago, and I think it's unclear uh, at present what the outcome of that has been. As you talk to our Gulf partners, there is clear skepticism about, the American, about American leadership in the region. Meanwhile, there's been a market increase in American weapons sales to the Gulf over the last few years. That said, a business relation certainly is not equivalent to a strategic partnership. There is a strong case to be made that almost every decision this administration has made concerning the Middle East over the last few years has been considered with pursuit of the Iran nuclear agreement in mind, or at least uh, that has impacted, certainly, uh, their decisions. Now that agreement is going to be implemented, it's now that the agreement is going to be implemented, it's vitally important, vitally important that we close the daylight between us and our GCC allies. I hope our witnesses will cover why the GCC is important to American interest and what the future of security cooperation in that region should look like. That future should be on display right now in Yemen, where the perception of a disengaged America and a resurgent Iran has led the GCC to take a stand. Now, in fairness, uh, that stand is not entirely on their own, as Gulf states are displaying their use of American equipment and training with surprising effectiveness, but also an intolerable level of civilian casualties. The war and the resulting extreme humanitarian crisis is receiving the reluctant support of this administration. Yet I'm not sure what the defined objectives and end state of that support is at present, and hopefully you'll help us with that. I hope our witnesses can help us understand what American policy towards the GCC countries should look like and how we balance that against real humanitarian concerns. Thank you again for appearing before our committee, and I look forward to your testimony. And with that, turn to our distinguished ranking member and my friend Ben Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I uh, strongly uh, support this hearing and the importance of having a discussion on the regional security strategies involving our Gulf Cooperative Council in Yemen. Uh, last week, as you know, I introduced legislation, the Iran Policy Oversight Act, and part of that was a response to the debate we had during the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review. And what came out loud and clear from all of our members is that it's critically important that the United States has a well-articulated regional security strategy that gives comfort to our allies, to Israel, to the Gulf Cooperative Council, and deals with the challenges in Yemen. So um, this hearing is, I think, critically important for us to try to understand what we can do in strengthening uh, the, that um, understanding in the region about the U.S. leadership uh, with our partners. Working deeply with the Gulf Cooperative Council countries is absolutely critical to ensuring that we push back on all Iranian destabilizing behavior. Although the U.S.-GCC collaboration has taken on new importance and urgency as the Iran deal is implemented, 
It is also important to recognize that these relationships and the policy objectives of deepening multilateral cooperation is not new. U.S. commitment to the legitimate defense needs of the Gulf countries dates back to the first Gulf War. U.S. commitment to security cooperation extends through the last decade's engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan. And recently, its commitment has been underscored through the USGCC Strategic Cooperative Forums hosted by Secretaries of State Clinton and Kerry and the USGCC Camp David Summit hosted uh, by President Obama, as you mentioned. The U.S. engagement with the GCC is fundamental to achieving any shared goal in the region, whether it's defeating ISIL, restoring stability in Iraq and Yemen, shoring up Jordan and Lebanon, addressing persistent instability in North Africa, reinvesting in the peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, or working towards a negotiated political transition away from Assad in Syria. The GCC countries play a critical role in a multitude of shared interests from maritime security to counterterrorism to humanitarian response to the hosting and basing of U.S. forces in the region. So there are many, many reasons why we why this relationship is critically important. I, I want to just add one additional point, if I might, as it relates uh, to Yemen. Yemen, we need to move forward with a political solution in Yemen. We're not, it's not going to be a military victory. It's got to have to be a, 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 a political, um, implementing a political solution in that country. And we know it's not easy. We know it's complicated. Uh, but I think the United States leadership is going to be critically important as we look at dealing with the impact that Yemen has on the GCC countries as well as on the regional stability issues. So I look forward to listening to our witnesses. I look forward to this discussion. Uh, as I was saying before, we sat down with our two distinguished uh, witnesses. Uh, there are going to be a lot more questions than answers, I'm afraid. And I think this discussion is going to be important so that we can reach an understanding as how the United States leadership can advance the security concerns of our friends and allies in the region. Thank you. I'll introduce, uh, thank you for your comments. I'll introduce our two witnesses. Our, our one witness is the Honorable Mary Beth Long, founder and chief executive officer of Meta Solutions and was the first ever Senate confirmed female assistant secretary of defense. We thank you for being here. Uh, our other witness today is the Honorable Stephen Sesh, Executive Vice President of the Arab Gulf States Institute and former Ambassador to Yemen. So you all have a lot to share with us. We thank you both for being here. I know you all have been here before and understand we'd like for you to keep your comments to about five minutes. Any written materials you have will be entered into the record. And with that, Ambassador Sesh, if you would begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. As we meet this afternoon, powerful destructive forces are at work in the Middle East, tearing apart societies, provoking a massive migration, and threatening the very existence of established states. None of this is news to anyone who pays even cursory attention to events in the region. But what may be less apparent is the extent to which Arab Gulf states are involved in the conflicts and the crises that are roiling the Middle East. In unprecedented ways, states of the Gulf Cooperation Council are employing their wealth and modern military arsenals to try and shape outcomes that serve their interests from Libya to Egypt and from Syria to Yemen. What drives them and what the U.S. can do to influence their behavior are questions worthy of careful examination. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to contribute to your discussion of these issues. My own assessment may seem counterintuitive. On the face of it, the newfound assertiveness of the Arab Gulf states like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, 
might well suggest a greater degree of confidence and maturity than seen in the past. And while I would like to think this is the case, I strongly suspect that it is motivated at least in equal measure by a collective anxiety that flows from three major concerns. First, that the United States, long the guarantor of Gulf security, is disengaging from the region. Second, that a resurgent, re-legitimized, and emboldened Iran will increase its efforts to destabilize Arab Gulf states. And finally, that the wave of political and social unrest that engulfed the Middle East in 2011 will make its way to Gulf doorsteps, threatening the status quo and the very survival of the monarchies themselves. I will very quickly touch on each of these points, which I examine more closely in my written testimony. There is no doubt that the fundamental underpinning of the US relationship with the Arab Gulf states is changing. Their oil for our security assurances has been the fundamental premise upon which the relationship has existed for years. But I think reports of the US disengagement from the region are wildly premature. We are simply too deeply invested in the region and the strategic partnerships with our Arab Gulf partners to walk away. Regarding Iran, I believe that its nuclear program is only the tip of the iceberg, the part that draws the most attention because it looms so large in the public mind. It is the threat that lies beneath that most worries our Gulf partners, the financial and military support Iran provides to destabilizing political and armed insurgent movements in the region. Which brings me briefly to Yemen, because it is here that the Sunni Arab coalition led by Saudi Arabia has chosen to draw a line in the sand and tell Iran that its interference in the region will no longer be tolerated. At enormous cost to the Yemeni people and the nation's already fragile infrastructure. It has never been my view that the Houthi movement comes with a made in Iran label. In fact, I would argue that the support provided by former Yemeni President Ali Abdullah Saleh has been much more decisive than whatever Iran has made available. Finally, let me address the response of Arab Gulf states to internal pressure for political reform, which is two-pronged. On the one hand, they are monitoring internal dissent carefully, and to one extent or another, taking steps to quash it. At the same time, there are efforts afoot to provide citizens of the Gulf monarchies with a modest level of political participation through elections, in particular to municipal councils that have only limited authority. Mr. Chairman, while in the long run it is a good thing if Gulf states are disposed to engage more readily in finding solutions to regional crises, we can also hope they become proficient in using tools other than military hardware to do so. One of these tools might be the political will necessary to agree to a framework within which GCC states and Iran engage in direct talks on those issues that divide them. Of course, nothing would please the United States more than to see Iran's engagement with its neighbors and the West increase, whether through trade, investment, academic exchanges, or tourism. Every contact is seen as one less brick in the foundation supporting the conservative theocratic regime in Tehran, a sort of slow motion, soft power transition to a more open, inclusive form of governance. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I look forward to elaborating on these points with you and the members of your committee. Thank you very much, Secretary Long. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. 
As the former Assistant Secretary of Defense who was responsible for strategies in the Middle East, I learned the critical importance to the United States of our close and continuing relationship with our Gulf Arab partners. Unfortunately, those close and continuing partnerships are strained today, in part because of the implicit policy that they view by the United States to allow Iran to build its regional power and its influence, much along the lines of uh, the ambassador's comments, and to be soft on Iran as far as its political, asymmetric, military, and other activities that for our important Gulf neighbors are at least, if not more critical, than its nascent nuclear weapons uh, advances. The US's primary concern in Yemen is that of a growing perception, if not reality, that Iran is using this conflict in order to increase its power and that the Gulf states have decided there to respond. Again, much along the lines of my colleague. But if we're I could, I'd have to say it's actually amazing to um, hear his presentation. I know most people understand we, we have this side have a witness and this side have a witness. And it's amazing how on all these issues the alignment has been as it has been. But anyway, keep going. Absolutely. But I believe we're making a mistake. Yemen is not a model for U.S. counterterrorism efforts, as asserted by the White House a very short time ago, and we are missing the strategic. Yemen is just the most recent piece of Iran's efforts to increase its power, and the most recent development of the Russian-Iranian alliance is worrisome, not only in Yemen, but in Syria. And the linkages between these regional participants and what is happening in both those conflicts is something I believe that is inimical to US interests and something that we need to examine. The re-entry of Russian military into the region suggests that things could get much worse in Yemen in the near, in the near term particularly to the extent that there is a division of labor between Russia and Iran of what is happening in Syria and that the role in Hezbollah in Iran is increased, forcing the division of labor and the nascent show of the Houthis willing to come to the table will be delayed even further because of operating space or reprieved that they will be getting from Iran and or Hezbollah. And in fact, it was a Russian Toka missile that killed the 45 Emiratis earlier this fall. Russia has long had strategic interests in Yemen, and its use of Iran to further those interests is something we ought to be thinking about, particularly in light of what is happening in both Iraq and Syria. This is particularly true as the administration does not appear to be willing to call out either Iran or Russia for what they are doing in the region, nor to understand Russia and Iran's full motives as I believe the GCC does. Thus far in Yemen, the political situation is at best a stalemate. The big question is, how far must the Houthis be pushed in order to negotiate, and is it really a Houthi decision any longer, given the myriad of players who are now involved, not only on the ground, but also in supplying weaponry, advice, and support, including the US? Arguably, the clearest benefactors of the ongoing conflict are Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and ISIS. Al-Qaeda being, according to the State Department and the Center for Counterterrorism in the US, still the only organization taking advantage of the power vacuums that plays along the fears of the, the Sunni tribes who are convinced that Iran will be allowed to run its course and it must turn to either AQ or ISIS in order to county the Iranian Shia and Houthis. What is the nature of the conflict? It's asymmetrical, 
It employs missiles and incredibly increasing political meddling, not unlike the political meddling, meddling excuse me, in Bahrain, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. All of these are at least as worrisome as the Iran nuclear aspirations. Of note, Saudi Arabia has over 1,500 kilometers of shared border with Iran that are at great risk. The American interests in Yemen are legion. We must build a strategic deterrence to containing Iran in the Gulf. We must increase and demonstrate our partnerships to the GCC in much more than just selling of weapons as requested. The gate of tears and freedom of navigation along and among the parties that are, excuse me, using the Strait of Humus for the majority of their oil and gas, not just the US, but China and elsewhere that have severe impact on American jobs and economy must be considered in what we are doing in Yemen and in the region. So what is the end game? The end game should be little on the ground information and, and excuse me, the end game for the United States should be augmenting our very little on the ground information and, and visibility on what the Gulf states are doing, alleviating the human suffering and poverty by helping the GCD target better and marginalize and mitigate the collateral damage performed by their military activities. We should expedite the sales of precision guided weaponry targeting and other assistance to the Gulf Arabs in order to help their military actions be more effective and reduce the number of casualties. Although our efforts to work through the GCC and the Arab League may have been a good idea, they were premature. Neither organization is able nor equipped to deal with acquisitions nor our exports regulations and laws. And our bureaucracy alone is delaying and deterring military support that is necessary to the ongoing conflict as we speak. Finally, we need to lead internally. The president and the administration has been opaque in what are US interests in Yemen, and we need to come up with a, with a policy and a strategy that articulates our aims and goal. And finally, current limitations on our naval deployments in the Gulf as a result of sequestration and the lack of operational funds due through the BCA is limiting and tying our military's hands to be effective support. We can do better. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both for your testimony. If I could, I will just briefly, uh, uh, Madam Secretary, uh, you're referring to a request that the Saudis have right now for uh, guided weaponry to refurbish what they've been using uh, in Yemen. And I guess there's a concern if we don't act upon that, they will have to resort to dumb bombs, which uh, in many ways will be, uh, in every way, will be more damaging to civilian populations. I think that's the specific issue you're referring to. Is that correct? Yes, Mr. Chairman. If I could, um, you also spoke to something else. I'd like both of you to respond. Um, you, you mentioned that we need to demonstrate our support for the GCC in Yemen. So I'd like to ask you both this. I mean, are we involved in the way that we are there uh, to, to demonstrate support for the GCC, or is there some national interest in Yemen that we uh, care deeply about? And if you would, uh, elaborate. Is it more about us demonstrating support, or is it because Yemen itself has uh, in itself national interest to our country? If I may, Mr. Chairman, I'll begin, and then let Mary Beth finish. Um, where I end off and, and probably better. But I do believe that we are there principally at the moment because of the alliance with Saudi Arabia. 
I think when, when Saudi Arabia decided in March to go in with the coalition to begin the bombing campaign, um, we didn't get a whole lot of advance warning. We didn't get a question as to whether we thought it was a good idea or not. We were told fundamentally that Saudi Arabia had decided there was such a crisis on its southern border, it had to move forcefully and decisively to route the Iranians and their proxies, the Houthis, as they see the world. Uh, so we went in, I think, believing it was better to be in the tent than not, uh, in hopes that we could somehow kind of chart the course with the Saudis so this, this expedition of theirs might turn out better in the process. I think the instinct was right. I think the execution has been less than good. And I think what we have now is kind of a tiger by the tail, where we are now complicit in what the Saudis are doing with the coalition in Yemen uh, without a real ability to change the course of what they're doing. And we're trying very hard to persuade them I think, to see their way clear to get the parties to the conflict to, ne to the negotiating table. Um, but it's not been easy. And I do believe the Saudis and the coalition members are so enthused at the moment by what they see in terms of their victories on the ground, they're reluctant to say, let's call a halt to this and give the Houthis an advantage. So they want to press harder even, perhaps. And I hope that they don't have in mind, uh, in this context, an attack on the capital, Sana'a. I think that would be an absolute disaster. It's a city of two million people with the with deep pockets of support for the Houthis and former President Saleh. I can't imagine what a ground assault would do other than lead to more deaths and more carnage uh, in Yemen, I think is very ill-advised. I don't disagree. I actually think it's, it's, um, it's that, but it's more complicated. There are three reasons why it's what, but it's more complicated. More complicated. But it, it's what? But it, it is our support to Saudi Arabia and our support to the Gulf, but I think there are two other very key interests. The first are U.S. national interests. I mean, for all our talk of being energy independent, the fact of the matter is approximately 30% of our oil and gas does come through either the Strait of Hormuz or the Gateway of Tears, and that's not going to change in the near future. And to the extent it's not our oil and gas, China and others are still highly dependent on the oil and gas that transferred through there. And, and as you know, the Gate of Tears also controls all the traffic that goes through the Suez Canal. Secondly, it's, it's not only us supporting the Gulf and the Saudi, but it's us showing that Iran and us showing Russia that we are serious about hegemonic behavior in the region and we do intend to draw a line. And that military involvement, particularly to the extent in Yemen that we are now seeing, is not acceptable to US interests and is something that we don't support. So it's really those three things. Our interests, support to the Gulfs, messaging to our enemies. Do you think the members of the GCC, um, without our leadership, have, have they demonstrated effectiveness in, in Yemen? I think the GCC's done two things. I think they've demonstrated their lack of confidence that we would lead and join them, and thus the reason they've gone out on our own and delayed in informing us. And I think that they've demonstrated that they could have remarkable military success. I don't think that you'd find any argument uh, either in the U.S. or in the GCC, that this is not something that's going to be won militarily, and it's the political piece that's missing, and there we do have a lack of, uh, there, certainly the goals have been ambiguous, and the means have been even more difficult to determine. Mr. Sash. If I may, Mr. Chairman, I think what we've seen in, in Yemen is that the coalition went in without an end game. They went in in, in a really very hot, uh, they were in a, in a state seeing what they did see in terms of the Houthis taking over territory willy-nilly heading south towards Aden. And I think what we've seen now is that they've learned what we've learned, that you cannot do this entirely by the air. You can't do this just by airstrikes alone. You cannot win a conflict. And so they have had to introduce ground forces. 
and at some considerable cost. And there was just an attack this morning which killed more Emiratis and more Saudis, and this is following the one in early September in which 55 of the Emiratis and Saudis were killed as well. So I think this is starting to really dawn on our Gulf allies that there's more to this than demonstrating to the world a very resolute Saudi Arabia resolving to take care of its own defense needs. And I think what we've seen to some extent is a very inexperienced Saudi Minister of Defense uh, with the reins given to him by his father uh, in this case and asked to control and manage and orchestrate a very complicated issue uh, in Yemen militarily. And it has not, as you suggested yourself earlier, Mr. Chairman, it has not yet gone as they might have thought. Mm-hmm. I think they're learning some of the same lessons um, we've learned for the last 15 years. Let me. As far as uh, what our involvement should be with them for a better outcome, what would the two of you um, suggest? I think three things. Apologize, we're both so polite. Um, uh, number one, and you're I, both so so much on the same page. It's very refreshing. Um, I think, from a concrete standpoint, we need to help them more aggressively with targeting. Um, not only to, in order to help them, but to be more effective militarily, but we've got to start mitigating these collateral damages and human rights issues. Number two. And we would do that how? We actually, there are means of lazing targets on the ground that I don't believe that we are employing. Uh, the White House, there seems to be some ambiguity as to the extent in which we are involved in targeting, uh, whether we are preparing packaging and helping prioritization. Uh, I would leave it to our military uh, experts and our commanders to discuss the detail, but certainly more involved targeting. And as we all know from what happened in Kunduz, uh, it's not is an imperfect exercise, but uh, we can certainly do better, and we need to help them do better. Provide them with munitions that are precision-guided and can be lased and targeted. I think one of the big mistakes that we're making, and the one I hear the Gulf complain about the most, is this idea of working through the Arab League and having a unified Arab uh, force and working through the GCC um, is, is just misguided. The GCC was not set up to do procurements. Mm-hmm. Uh, the CCC was not set up to um, for end-user certification. Uh, we are not. It's 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 a idea which time may come, but now is not it. We need to be working bilaterally. And um, although the GCC and the U.S. talked at Camp David about expediting exports, um, I think what has happened um, in the follow-through that it has devolved to. Um, mid-level or bureaucrats at my level um, that are working as much and as well as they can through the bureaucracy, but this is not an easy bureaucracy, um, and it needs leadership and and attention at the highest, most levels. Uh, We can increase our intelligence. Um, Our intelligence is still weak. We have very little visibility in what's going on on the ground, and that visibility, frankly, can also help us monitor what the Gulf is doing. We have very little visibility. What? Say that again. Um, What's going on on the ground. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're relying... Uh, primarily through third party and other reporting, uh, we can do better. Um, my understanding is from a satellite tasking and other measures that we're extremely limited in the region and that a lot of our information uh, could be shaped by those who are providing it to us. Uh, and finally, um, exercises. Uh, we've talked a lot at Camp David about performing exercises to send signals. Uh, we've not really put any on the table. Part of that is the limitations that are imposed by our military commanders because of resources, in part because of the way the budgets and sequestration have evolved and our uh, naval presence that's available even to go to the Gulf. Um, I have a, a further list in my written te- testimony. Excuse me. If you'd be brief, I'm over my time, and I want to try to set an example. 
Um, what I would say, Mr. Chairman, at this point is if the Saudis, and I believe they do, are looking to us for a refill on the munitions they need to continue to fight in Yemen, I would really put that uh, offer on the table with considerable strings. And one of them would be we need to have the Saudis really facilitate uh, some kind of a, a venue in which talks can begin. I think the Saudis have been very slow, as I said earlier, to see that this is a moment in which talks could be profitable and productive and perhaps bring an outcome to this conflict. I think they see this as a military victory right now. I think we need to make it clear to them there is no military victory here and that only some kind of a negotiation with all the parties to the conflict can bring this to a rapid close and they need to allow President Hadi, because they really are the ones who are behind him dictating the terms he will set, to sit down with the Houthis and others in the conflict and really come to some kind of a, a power sharing agreement that will allow everyone to be inside uh, a government and be able to govern those, their, their issues within Yemen themselves. Thank you both very much. Senator Cardin. Well, thank you both. I, I certainly agree with your final comment, as I said in my introductory uh, remarks. Uh, it's clear that the security in this region very much depends upon U.S. leadership, not just because we have the military capacity. Uh, we also are able to bring a coalition together uh, for effective results but also because of the universal values that America represents, uh, what is desperately needed in, in this region. So I, I want to first uh, uh, quote from President Obama in an interview that he made this past April, where he observed that many countries across the Middle East, populations are alienated, youths are unemployed, an ideology that is destructive, in some cases just a belief that there are no legitimate political outlets for grievances. And so part of our job is to work with these states and say, how can we build your defense capabilities against external threats, but also how we can strengthen the body politic in these countries so that the Sunni youth feel that they got something other than ISIL to choose from. I think the biggest threat that they face may not be coming from Iran invading. It's going to be from dissatisfaction inside their own countries. That's a tough conversation to have, but it's one that we have to have. I state that because we should look at what happened in Egypt. The United States was criticized by the GCC that we were not strong enough in defending the Mubarak regime. We are criticized internationally that we are on the wrong side of history in regards to the rights of the people of Egypt. Are we going to be on the right side of, of regional security in the Middle East if we are not effective in bringing about political reform in the GCC? Uh, we see protests. We saw the protests in Bahrain in 2011, the Shias. And, and the question is, how can we effectively re engage our partners in the region on their external security threats in a way that we can also strengthen their internal rights for its citizens? Uh, Senator Cardin, I think you've touched on what is probably the most neuralgic uh, point for our Gulf allies, which is political reform. Uh, and this is an area where we have not been able to engage with them as fully and effectively as I think we all would like. I think we tend to be differential. Uh, we tend to depend upon them as security allies, and therefore we let a lot of the internal uh, conditions in the Gulf states go by without sitting down and pressing points about what we think is necessary for long-term stability, as you said yourself. And I give President Obama credit for speaking publicly about the need to have these conversations because they are essential. And I think no partnership can really thrive without a full scope 
of discussion about all of the elements of security and stability in those nations, and certainly civil society, how they can cultivate a civil society that is supportive of the regime and not looking to tear it down is a fundamental issue for them to come to grips with. And I think so often our Gulf allies see civil society and reform movements as a threat to their long, their, the long longevity, and this doesn't need to be that way at all. I think te they tend to be more cases than not loyal to the regime, but they do want to see a little breathing space and a little room where they can become viable, functional parts of a, not, not a democracy, at least something that's more representative and something that's more inclusive. Excuse me, I don't dispute the need to engage our Gulf allies and our allies worldwide on the role of civil society and engagement of the peoples. However, as a more pragma pragmatist, I think right now that the problems are not in the Gulf and the problems are not in Saudi Arabia due to internal conflict. And in fact, the GCC will tell you that one of the reasons it is operating in Yemen is in order to give the Sunni there some alternative other than ISIS and AQAP to protect their interests while they believe that they are being forced out and limited in their exercise of their rights by the Shia-led Houthis, by the Iranians and by other interlocutors who are limiting the Sunni ability to exercise their uh, freedoms within Yemen, and that this is the line that they're drawing. Having engaged in the Gulf countries um, for many years as one of the senior negotiators, I have actually found them remarkably willing to discuss uh, the roles of civil society, the openness of the conversations have always been very full. I don't think that's the problem that we're dealing with now as the region basically becomes a conflagration of Yemen, Iraqi, uh, Lebanese, Syria, and now um, nascent conflicts in other areas where there's actually battle engaging. First, I think we need to contain I would the just say that if that had that conversation with Egypt a few years ago, talking to our military and the military-to-military -military relationship between Egypt and the United States and how close that was, I probably would have gotten a similar answer. Uh, Arab Spring happened. People want freedom. It may not be the immediate issue, but it will emerge. And if we don't use the opportunities we have to make those advancements, it will come back to hurt U.S. interests and security interests. And I have not seen, a, uh, I appreciate your compliments to President Obama, and, uh, I, and that's why I quoted his comments. I'm not aware of this being even on the agenda of the summit. And I just think we make a huge mistake when we don't take advantage of opportunities to make it clear that we expect advancements. We don't expect overnight change. We don't expect them to adopt an American system. We do expect them to adhere to international human rights. And in every one of these countries, uh, there is need for significant improvement. And I think at our own peril, if we don't bring that up at times, um, uh, it, it's against our long-term interest. I, I want to ask one more question, if I might, before my time expires in deference to my colleagues. And that is, I would like to get your assessment as to how the GCC sees Russia uh, in this region. Uh, Russia obviously has had an impact on Iran directly. And now, in Syria, it's uh, having a much larger uh, military presence. Uh, how, and there's some talk about Russia and Egypt getting together with some discussions. Uh, my, my question basically is, from the GCC point of view, how do they see uh, their relationship with Russia evolving based upon the reliability of the United States? 
I think they're not sure. I think they see Putin as a stronger leader who's more decisive than our White House. And so in some respects, they were attracted to him. I also think they were attracted to him because they would sell him, uh, excuse me, Putin and the Russians often represented an alternate mean to military sales when we were unwilling. Um, as you see, Egypt, I think, is one of the examples. Um, I think now that they're seeing Russians' involvement in Syria, Iraq, and possibly Yemen, uh, they're not sure of Russian goals, and they're offended and frightened by the fact that Russia appears to be aligning itself with Iran. Um, I, so I'm not sure that they've decided, frankly. Can we change that equation? We need to. I think that Mary Beth is right on the, that issue, Senator. I think that what, they, what our, our Gulf partners see now in Russia is a betrayal to some extent, because they have made overtures to Russia. The Saudi defense minister did go there in July. They were looking to make some kind of a relationship. And I think Russia is a useful foil in some ways for the Gulf Arab states as they look to say to us, we can find other markets, we can find other friends, we have other strategic alliances that we can form. It's not just you, uh, Washington. We can go to Moscow, we can go elsewhere. I don't think that fundamentally that is a threat to the primacy that we enjoy with our Arab Gulf allies. I think this is something that is useful and, and the Gulf states tend to spread their wealth around in terms of purchases of military supplies. They've always done so. They don't do a one market relationship with any country. But I don't think it's a serious courtship. And I do think what we've seen now with Russia coming in, siding itself with the Assad regime and with Iran and Syria is a deep, deep, distrust now of Russian motives. And I think what we see in Saudi Arabia just today, clerics by the dozen speaking out against Russia and what it's done basically to, to punish the Sunni population in Syria beyond where they've already been punished by the Assad regime. I think this is going to be the downfall of Vladimir Putin's adventure in Syria is that he is going to be seen as really working against the Sunni Muslim population around the world. Thank you. Thanks, John. Senator Perdue. Well, thank you both for your lifetime of service. Um, I want to go back to, I've made two trips to the Middle East this year and talked to uh, most of our GCC partners and four or five heads of state over there. Um, I, I want to get more involved in Russia, and, um, and but first I want to talk about the Iranian involvement specifically in uh, Yemen. Uh, just last month there was an interdiction of a, of a private vessel uh, with arms, serious arms, going into Yemen. And yet we have, uh, still have some sanctions uh, relative to uh, Iran's uh, uh, activity. Can you be more specific? I'd ask both of you this question. And, and the second part of that question specifically is what is Iran's on-the-ground involvement today in Yemen? And secondly, how does the military presence in Syria uh, affect our future position vis-a-vis -vis what, we're, what we're trying to do in Yemen? Uh, Ms. Long? Um, on the first point, interdiction, um, I think statistically, if you go back and look, uh, U.S.-led and uh, international interdiction over the last year, uh, in particular against Iranian and other vessels going into Yemen, has been low. And the Gulf uh, states will tell you that's one of the examples of us giving the Iranians a buy because we have not been enforcing even the existent uh, sanctions that are applicable to Iranian uh, military activities, particularly to Yemen, and that there have been instances where we've backed off. Uh, so I'm not sure that we know or anybody really knows the extent. Certainly weaponry, um, the, the Russian missile incident uh, against the Emiratis, anyone will tell you, much like the incident in Ukraine, 
successfully firing one of those missiles and having it hit the target uh, with the precision that it did is no small feat. It's highly unlikely those were done by Houthis or tribesmen. Uh, it's very uh, likely that they were done either by Hezbollah, who had access to those weaponry and training in the past, or by Russians or Iranians who were on-site providing uh, strategic and other help. I think that the, um, the role and the numbers of IRGC, or Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard of Iran, um, who are participating in Yemen is uh, done nothing but increase. There are some analysts who think that there's a tacit division of labor that's occurring between Iran and uh, Russia in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen, whereas in one place someone's the weapon supplier, mm -hmm. and in the other place someone's the guy on the ground. Uh, Russia takes the air in Syria, Iran takes the ground in uh, Yemen, but I don't think we have good visibility on the numbers and types, except that it's increasing. Senator, I think there's no doubt that Iran has for years supported the Houthi movement uh, politically, financially, and militarily. Um, and this is what Iran does. We know this around the world. Whenever they see a besieged Shia community anywhere, they come to its assistance, and they do it any way they can. They always do it sub rosa, if possible, because they don't want to have any fingerprints on it, but they are there, and they're there in Yemen, and they're in Bahrain, as Mary Beth said earlier. But I think that, again, what we see in, in Yemen is a nationalist movement. The Houthis have been, the, the, the Shia, the Zaydis have been in Yemen for thousands of years. The Houthis are just a portion of that community, and they have grievances that, are, that have endured for years and years. They've had six conflicts with the government of Ali Abdullah Saleh when he was president over a period of 10 years. So there's a lot of grievance that the Houthis bring that didn't need Iran to provoke them or to spur them on. They have enough of their own angst and their own anxieties to last a lifetime. So I think what we see, though, is Iran taking advantage of a situation, exploiting it as best it can. I don't think that, uh, that the Iranians are there in any really decisive way. Again, as I said earlier, I think they're there. But I think the Houthis have been able to do what they've done because they were speaking to a population in Yemen that was as disenfranchised as they were. And it was not a sectarian conflict until, I, I, I believe, until Saudi Arabia entered. And then it became very pronounced. Then it was Sunni Saudi Arabia against Shia Iran. Prior to that, it was the Houthis with a political message that really resonated across all sectarian lines in Yemen. And it was, there's corruption, there's an ineffective government, there's a better future of reform, but no one is giving it to us, in spite of all the time we've spent following 2011 trying to get to that point. You know, you both have spoken about the, um, the underlying um, crisis over there, and that's really the, the religious sectarian conflict, Sunni on Shia, Shia on Sunni. Certain countries, the minorities in, in control, <clears throat> and so forth. So you've got the, you've got the uh, continuing conflict there. When you look at it as it relates to nation states, though, the concern that I have is that we don't have a strategy, and so when, you, when it, it gets down to the detailed tactics of supporting allies there uh, relative to the Obama doctrine in the region, I'm at a loss for really how we execute against that. So my question is, as these strategic partnerships have failed us in the region relative to the Obama doctrine he laid out a year and a half ago, I think, at one of the military academies, how do, how do we go forward um, with these partnerships that now have great doubts about our intentions in the area? Without an overlying strategy long term, how do they even begin to think about uh, a GCC close-in strategy relative to Syria and, and Yemen? Oh, and one last derivative of that, excuse me, is this proliferation threat. I am really very concerned about that. After talking to these foreign ministers and, and some of the heads of state, particularly after the JCPOA, is what can we do to combat that? Because that's, a, that's another derivative of our lack of long-term strategy. 
think the most important thing we can do is become engaged, clear, clearly send signals that we have not left the region, that we are not going to leave the region, that there are consequences to the proliferation of weapons, and there are the consequences to entities from outside the region basically taking what was an internal conflict, and I agree with my colleague regarding the Houthis, but hijacking it so that it has morphed well beyond anything that we would recognize 10 years so ago. So I'm sorry to interrupt. You've, you've, I've, uh, I heard the chairman ask you earlier, what, how would you do that? And, and the answer was more specific arms um, delivery. But uh, is, are there any other things that we could do to execute what you just said? Yes, we need to increase our presence in the Gulf, get back to the naval carriers that we had uh, a few years ago before that we had to reduce them re um, because of sequestration. And that creates a real problem to have any kind of foreign policy in the Middle East. Well, we have to have a strong military. And the problem is right now we're about to be in a position where we have the smallest army since World War II, the smallest Navy since World War I, the smallest Air Force ever. And we're not done yet. Uh, I, I'm not trying to make this a political comment, but I really am trying to point out and get you to answer how serious this threat is if we can't back up what you're suggesting in terms of interdicting our position there. We can't, and on the, on the, the way that we're headed with our congressional impasse on budgetary and sequestration and the reduction in our forces, particularly to our naval forces, we won't be able to in the future for two excuse me, the foreseeable future. And that's huge because our credibility is gone because we're not participating, we're not following through. And you don't think that's lost on Mr. Putin or uh, 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 the uh, Ayatollah either, do you? Of course it's not, and that's why Russia and Iran has expanded their participation both militarily and politically in all these conflicts that should have been and could have been contained at least in some respects. They could have been uh, at least mitigated from right. creeping into uh, the other region had we had a strong U.S. foreign policy and a plan that we were executing. And frankly, we've had and have neither. Ambassador, I'm out of, my, out of time, but uh, with your forbearance. Sure, absolutely. And just briefly then, Senator, I think that, that you, you make a very valid point, and I think that we are not going to probably increase our presence in the Gulf. We have a very solid presence there now. We have the number of military bases, Al-Udaid. We have the Fifth Fleet in Bahrain. We have Dafra in, in the UAE. We have 40,000 servicemen and women. This is a very strong statement of our support and strategic partnership in the region. I think that our Gulf Arab allies are worried, not so much because they think we're going to walk away from the, there, but because they think we're going to introduce Iran back into the could, could I interject just one thing, though? In, in what we're about to do in Afghanistan, is not also, that also is not lost on the leaders in the area. We're about to cut in half, basically, our troops over there. That's what's being recommended right now by the administration. That's not lost on the people over there. So the change in direction is as serious to me as the total numbers. Would you disagree with that? Well, I don't think it's changing direction. I think that this has been plotted out as a course we were going to take for years now. I think a lot of circumstances have prevented us from moving more resolutely towards taking those steps on the timeline we had initially projected. So I think what we're seeing now is basically events forcing us to step away from some of these conflicts. And I think that's fair. I think part of what the president has looked to do with our Gulf allies is, is build their capacity, is build their ability to do their own self-defense in ways that is, is functional and fair to them and fair to us. As an ally, we cannot be there and we cannot project our force around the world as we did once in our history. We have to let those regional powers with our support, with our munitions, with our, our, our modern weaponry, with our training and with our political will and our political skills engage in those conflicts and in those crises effectively. Mr. Chairman, only one comment. You know, we've, we've and I don't disagree with that. It's the timing of when you do that and the vacuum that you leave behind. We've had one really sour lesson in that recently in Iraq and I hope we don't do it again in, in other areas there. 
Thank you. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your <clears throat> service and your testimony. Uh, Ms. Long, you said in your written testimony, and I'll quote from it, um, Russia and Iran have partnered to advance the Houthis' interests in Yemen as part of a broader Middle East strategy of aggression. Washington does not fully understand how Iran and Russia are cooperating regionally. They appear to have a strategy, and we do not. And you further go on to say, the Obama administration does not appear to be willing to call out Russia for its military activities in the region and elsewhere. There is a relationship between what Russia is doing in Syria and what Russia is doing in Yemen, and we need to be realistic about what it is. So as we see Russia unfolding in Syria, and regardless of what may, one may think about will be the ultimate consequences for Russia as a result of that, uh, what would you have the administration do that it is not doing now that evokes those comments in your written testimony? I think actually the, the issue with Russia and Iran actually is not unlike the um, problem that we have with Russia and the Ukraine, where it's, it's the most recent example of Russian use of Russian irregulars, of Russian weaponry, of Russian targeting uh, that went unresponded to um, not only by the U.S., but by NATO. Uh, we danced around for quite some time uh, actually identifying Russian forces in the Ukraine and in, um, in Crimea and others. And this is, most, this is yet another step in that direction where Russia, uh, at first under the auspices of solidifying its uh, long-term basing in Syria, made noises about moving Russian equipment in, uh, next thing we know, it's missile defense equipment. The next thing we know, it's tanks. The next things we knew, there's other. Um, and it, this has been a creeping problem where it finally took Russian planes to fly over Turkey. And uh, the incidents of uh, just last week, where our maybe the week before, where our Secretary of Defense uh, noted uh, Russian involvement in flying sorties and lack of coordination. Uh, within 24 hours of us having met with the Russian leadership, um, about coordinating those things. This is a, a pattern of activity. Um, it isn't Russia um, protecting Russian citizens in, in the Baltics. It's not Russia protecting just its base in Syria. There are other motivations here, and we need to so, be very so clear about this. So what should we those. do? We need to be clear about them and call them out publicly. There need to be consequences. Uh, there could be hearings, frankly. There could be United Na Nations resolutions about examining Russia's role. Uh, about examining the equipment and the um, and the uh, level of technology that's moving into Syria, uh, we could unequivocally back the Gulf states regarding uh, not having Assad play any role in any kind of uh, reconciliation that may come in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, we could um, actually more forcefully complain about Russian targeting of moderate um, Islamic fighters that we have trained, although that has. Uh, come out a little bit in the U.S. paper. The president has not made any statements that I'm aware of. We have not made any international resolutions or call for um, the unjustified targeting of our trained moderates. So, so while I appreciate that, certainly anything at the U.N. which might be the purposes of trying to focus attention would be vetoed by Russia at the Security Council. Uh, but it might be worthy of just dri driving the point of where Russia is. You know, I, I found it a little amazing to see the Secretary of State next to uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, side by side talking about deconflicting. First of all, I don't think it was necessary of a press uh, event. And certainly, 
the sense, while deconflicting as a reality may be desirable, the image it sent is somehow an assent to Russia being there, at least at that point in time, which I thought should have been very clear that there's no circumstances, at least unless there is a coalition effort and Russia is committed to working with us as well as the coalition that exists to fight against ISIL. But the Secretary of State and the Foreign Minister side by side talking about deconflicting and nodding about deconflicting, I just, it, it boggles my imagination. Let me ask you this. The reason the GCC countries were bought to Washington to have the summit is why? What's the core reason? It wasn't because there was tumult at a given time, right? It wasn't even Yemen, per se. No, frankly, um, the politically uh, skeptic me thinks it was two things. Number one, uh, we wanted the GCC nations not to interfere with the Russian agreement that, or excuse me, the Iranian nuclear agreement that was still being examined by the Hill and the UN, and we wanted to reassure them in order to buy their silence. Number two, we were aware that they were skeptical regarding our overtures broadly to Iran, and that we wanted to at least publicly appear to be assuaging those and actually committing to to them that we would do something uh, in parallel to uh, Iranians other activities so in the region. So if in fact the reason we bring the GCC countries is to reassure them of something that to some degree we have instigated, forgetting about one's views on the nuclear agreement, I get concerned when I read the president saying in an interview, I think it was with Tom Friedman, that Iran should be, should be a regional power. Now, if you're the GCC countries and you hear the President of the United States say Iran should be a regional power, I, I think you have a lot of reason to be concerned, which then brings us to the summit uh, and what happened and what has transpired since. And so, you know, I, I read uh, the statement that basically we are willing to work with the GCC countries but at the end of the day, that is far from uh, a, even a security assurance, much less a guarantee. We gave security assurances to the Ukraine in the Budapest Memorandum. And we wrote it down and we told them, give up your nuclear weapons and we'll uh, make sure that we protect your territorial integrity. That didn't work out too well for Ukraine. So there isn't even that here, as far as I can tell. There is no assurance much less a guarantee. So what is it, in fact, that at this point the, the Gulf countries have from us other than uh, the attempt to warm uh, their uh, concerns and try to uh, make them feel more comfortable? At, at this point, what, what, from both of you, I would say, what have you seen take place other than a conference of words? What do you, have you seen take place what needs to take place, and if we're talking about weapons sales just as one dimension of that, at some point you bump up against the qualitative military edge that we are obligated, and I believe we should be, to Israel. And so how do you meet those challenges? Could you both comment on that? Well, Senator, I think my, my recollection is that there was a fairly explicit assurance delivered um, at Camp David that any external aggression against our Gulf allies would be met by us with force. So I believe that we did try to make that reassurance very public and very, very clear. 
because I think you're right. If it's only a question of bringing them over here so that we can have them walk outside and say, yes, we support the GCOPA, that's not exactly going to do uh, anything in the long run. But I think that there is a sense here now that a framework and a, and a structure has been created to take up the issues. And it's not just arms sales. It is, it is training. It's cybersecurity. It's maritime security. It's the integrated ballistic missile defense in the peninsula, all of which is key to the Gulf states being able to defend themselves with our support, with our technique, with our technical support, with our expertise, and with our weaponry. So you believe we gave them explicit assurances? I believe we did. And how is that memorialized? I believe in the, in the communiques that were issued after Camp David. And I also think that when President, uh, when Secretary Kerry met in New York on the margins of the UN last week in the Strategic Cooperation Forum with GCC foreign ministers, it was reiterated. Ms. Mm -hmm. Long, do you have a final thing, Ms. Chair? Ms. Long, is that your I have opinion? a very different view. I think the Gulf uh, allies walked away, and it's very difficult to find any kind of explicit assurance. Um, we certainly attempted to uh, provide vague, broad statements, but it was far short of the uh, explicit guarantees that they asked. And while the list of uh, things that we talked about in the discussions were broadly presented, none of them were new. Uh, all of those issues have been discussed in our strategic dialogues on an annual basis. And what the Gulf, I think, allies walked away with was an agreement with us that a peaceful Iran in the region that is a, a, a responsible international player is a good thing, uh, that they understand that our explicit, if not, in, excuse me, implicit, if not explicit policy is to uh, return Iran to its proper role of, um, in the region, that they believe that that role is a threat to them, um, and that there's very little detail as to what we would do and what we are willing to do currently um, to deter Iran uh, above and beyond the nuclear weapons issue. I just want to, um, this is subject to interpretation, so I'm not trying to say it's determinative, but the joint statement coming out of the Gulf Cooperative Council at Camp David stated, the United States is prepared to work jointly with the GCC states to deter and confront any external threat to any GCC state territorial integrity that is inconsistent with the UN Charter. In the event of such aggression or threat of such aggression, the United States stands ready to work with our GCC partners to determine urgently what action may be appropriate using the means at our collective disposal, including the potential use of military force for the defense of our GCC partners. That was the official statement that came out of it. Uh, Mr. Chairman, if I may, I'd like to say to the distinguished ranking member, I'm prepared to work with you on many things, <laughs> but being prepared to work with you and actually uh, making it happen, I, I, now, most time between us, it does happen. All suggesting, I'm not quite all sure suggesting is, to work I, I said it may be subject to different interpretations in the beginning. I just wanted to put on the record the specific language that came out, because it was, it did say specifically uh, territorial integrity and did say specifically all options, including military. Which Mr. Chairman, such divisions occurring with my Democratic friends, I'm going to turn to Senator Flake. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, can I ask before that we put a date on what Senator Cardin sure. just read? It was May 14, 2015, and for uh, let me, why don't I put the entire uh, statement in the record? So, uh, thank you, Mr. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for the testimony. Uh, let me continue with the JCPOA and the effect of it. We had. Uh, a number of hearings uh, over the past couple of months to study the JCPOA, and, and there was great concern among many of us that, you know, while the nuclear side of the agreement may be tight, maybe net plus, uh, many of us had the concern that uh, 
uh, we might lose some of our leverage when it came to Iran's malign behavior in the region. And I, it, what was going on in Yemen was going on long before the JCPOA was finalized, and some of these activities obviously have been going on, but what is your view there? Do we have the same leverage we had before, or will we worry even more that we'll give Iran pretext to forego their obligations on the nuclear side of the agreement if we challenge their behavior in the region? Mr. Seath, session. Well, uh, Senator Flake, I don't think that the, the JCPOA is going to the way it's enforced is going to encourage Iran one way or the other. I think their, their malign behavior has, has predated this agreement, by, we all know, by years and years. It will continue. Uh, it's, this is not going to be a disincentive uh, to them. There are separate reasons for them to want to go with the nuclear agreement. Re release of sanctions is the one big one, and the ability to regain some economic footing in, in this world of ours is, is really, for them, is the big prize. And basically, that, that sense of being re-legitimized, being allowed to come back into the community of nations. I also think they understand that if, there's, if the behavior that they're, they're involved in now in destabilizing their neighbor states continues, that's going to be an issue that's really going to be an impediment to the kind of work we're looking for them to do. And it's, it, I don't think it's going to impinge. This has always been the problem, I think, right? We've had one track, which is the JCPOA, and that is not involved in the behavioral issues. And the behavioral issues are what really drive our Gulf partners crazy because that, they see, is not impeded at all by the agreement, and, but the agreement has its value inherent in and of itself. We have to find a way to address the behavioral issues apart from what the nuclear agreement can do for us. I think what the nuclear agreement does on balance is a very solid piece of work, but it does not help us one way or the other with the behavioral issues, and that's something we're gonna have to do with Iran, with their neighbors, with the partnerships we have around the world to try to persuade Iran to give this up. And I think, again, this is probably, to some extent, wishful thinking, but the hope is that as Iran opens up to investment, as students travel back and forth, as there is this kind of, the windows get open and, and fresh air blows in, Iran will begin to feel that and will want to become part and parcel of this, this international community. Mm -hmm. I don't say that's a policy, because that's more like hope. Right. Ms. Long? I have a different view in that um, I actually think the Iran nuclear agreement actually greatly impedes our leverage. Number one, uh, it's what Iran wanted most. Um, and to the extent that we exercise any leverage over its bad behavior prior to the agreement, now having achieved the agreement, uh, we no longer have that leverage. More importantly, as a practical matter, the lifting of sanctions will provide uh, Iran with a windfall of tens of billions of dollars, uh, some of which, or some portion of which could be used to support the IRGC or its other external meddling. The real problem is, with or without the JPOA and the leverage, um, I think the Gulf countries would say, to the extent we have any leverage, we've been unsuccessful in using it, and frankly, giving our willingness to give Iran a buy and um, to treat Iran nicely with the hope, if not a strategy, but the hope that if Iran's cool air that um, grows th through its economic uh, and political systems that it will become more moderate, um, that that's unrealistic and that we, even if we had leverage, would be unwilling to use it for fear of not opening up these windows to allow the moderates to come forth. Mm -hmm. Well, specifically, uh, the concern that uh, was raised, you talked about once we open the door, once we relieve the sanctions, uh, the concern was raised during the discussion of the JCPOA that uh, imposition of those sanctions, Iran believes, uh, imposition of any of the s same sanctions that we had before, 
Um, and, and we all know the only effective sanctions really, particularly imposed unilaterally by us, are the ones on their central bank to make it difficult for them to move money around. If we were to, to do that or threaten that, then they would take it, as they've said already, as a violation of the agreement on our part. And so the concern that, that many of us had is that uh, we would lose leverage that we currently have, certainly, and if we haven't been able to, to deter them from this behavior, we certainly won't be able to later. So it, it is a great concern that, that we have um, because uh, they, have, they have said flat out imposition of these sanctions would be a violation on our part. So with regard to uh, Yemen specifically, have, you seen, have we seen any change at all since the signing of the JCPOA that somebody could tag to well, hey, Iran may be more reasonable now. Um, there's been no change in behavior on either side, really, in that conflict, has there? I haven't seen anything material that I would connect to the JCPOA at all. And I, again, I don't think that the Iranians are calling the shots for the Houthis. Mm -hmm. I think the Houthis have made their mind up. And what they've done is based on their own perception of their interests and where they think they can be. And once again, I think that former President Saleh was much more of, of a support for them than any external support Iran provided. And I think that Iran, once again, it, it's, it's exploiting the situation as best it can. Um, but it's not, it's not going to go in. It's not, it is not, at the moment, driving the train that the Houthis are on. The Houthis are, are their own bosses. They will make their own decisions based on their own calculations. That's my judgment. Right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to committee members. Um, I, I have not been impressed with the efforts of the GCC nations against ISIL. Um, do I see it wrong? I don't think that the GCC has come to grips yet with Sunni extremism, armed Sunni extremism, terrorism. I think that even when you look at al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, when you look right. at ISIL in Yemen, when you look at there, I don't believe they see these organizations as the most serious threat they face. They see the Shia threat as a greater They see Iran as the principal threat they face. And I believe, to some extent, they see that there is an opportunity for them to use the Sunni extremist organizations as a, as a tool that they can use to counter the threat posed to them by Iran and their perception. So I don't think that's necessarily something we're going to see them jump right at. Secretary Long? I don't disagree that I think um, the GCC nations see um, Iran and the Shia militia in Iraq um, and the border security to be much more of a threat than ISIL. I think their response on ISIL is complicated um, in part because of the physical location of ISIL, at least traditionally in, in Syria, and the disagreement uh, among various other players um, in Syria as to the role of um, Assad continuing and, and how they would play with the various other organizations, including um, the al-Nusra organizations and Qatar's role. So it's a, it's a little bit more ambiguous. The willingness of the GCC nations, Sunni nations, to tackle Sunni extremism, I mean, obviously now goes back many years and continues to be a real concern. I think their worry about the Shias are very legitimate. I think their indifference to some of the Sunni extremism is incredibly troubling. Um, I don't see the GCC nations doing that much to deal with Syrian refugees. Am I wrong about that? Uh, no, Senator. In fact, none of the Gulf countries have signed the UN Convention on Refugees. So none of them are under an obligation at this point to respond. And what they've done and what they've claimed to do is take in a lot of Syrian 
citizens, Syrian nationals, and they have done so, but a lot of that happens via work permits. They come in, they work there, and they are also then they're vulnerable to having those permits suspended, and they can be sent out of the country at the same time. A lot time. of these refugees, they're Sunni refugees fleeing the Shia, allied Assad atrocities in, in Syria, but I just am not seeing a lot of activity. And I compare that with the vigorous response of Saudi Arabia, for example, to the situation in Yemen. There's a capacity, there's a willingness, there are resources to act when they want to. It causes me some significant concern. Um, I was in Kuwait just coincidentally uh, 24 hours after the massive uh, Sunni bombing of the largest Shia mosque in Kuwait. Sunni extremism, uh, extremist bombing claim to, the ISIL claim to do that bombing. Now at least the leadership in Kuwait really worked hard to try to de-sectarianize this by having a memorial service in the largest Sunni mosque and bringing the Shia families there. But I'm just not seeing a lot of that uh, throughout the region. Um, I'm seeing an indifference to the Sunni extremism and a, and a concern, it could be legitimate about the Shia um, uh, influences. You indicated you did not think, Ambassador Sash, and I think Secretary Long, you agreed too, you did not think that the Yemen conflict was sectarian at its origins, but now it has kind of become sectarian because of the squaring off of the Saudi and Iranian proxies. You would agree with me, well, let me not ask a leading question. Does the U.S. have a position theologically Sunni versus Shia? I don't believe that we do, Senator. I think what we're looking at is conduct, behavior, ability to work with other communities, reach across the aisle, reach across the table, uh, and really prosper in some fashion that, that benefits all of us. So it's a win-win right. situation. So we, we shouldn't have a position in a theological or sectarian debate. Uh, not, I cannot imagine And we why. shouldn't take positions that would be viewed even unwittingly as expressing a preference in a theological debate. I mean, would you agree with me on I that? I can't imagine why we would. Um, let's talk about Bahrain for a minute. We got a huge military presence there in the Fifth Fleet. Talk to me a little bit about the current internal political situation in Bahrain and whether that ongoing instability with a small Sunni ruling majority and a large Shia majority, a small ruling minority that's Sunni and a large Shia majority. Talk to me about whether that instability poses challenges to us in terms of the stability of the Fifth Fleet headquarters there in Bahrain. Um, the Shia majority in Bahrain um, is significant, and it's also the largest trading and merchant class and has been historically. I think the bigger challenge um, beyond the civil society um, issue that the Bahrainis are dealing with, with uh, changes to some of their laws and, and perhaps mm -hmm. incremental but too slow of reforms, is um, their concern that Iran is using the Shia religious aspects of this largely, I wouldn't even say particularly religious group, but certainly mm -hmm. a mercantile group uh, for its own aims, and sorting out and separating um, the aspirations of the legitimate aspirations of the Shia um, and those that are being manipulated by Iran is a big problem. Uh, and it does. And we don't need to go into intel here, but I mean, that is clearly right. happening that Iran is right. manipulating the disaffection of the 70% of the population right. with respect to their place in a, 
uh, in, in the nation of Bahrain. Do you worry about that instability down the road, especially as uh, you were uh, Secretary of Defense, especially as, as it affects our, uh, you know, the uh, viability of our military operations in Bahrain? I don't see any dangers to the Fifth Fleet in the near term. Uh, it's certainly a challenge that we need to push um, Bahrain to deal with, as we would have any of our neighbors or colleagues. Um, it's, it's not in, very dissimilar to our, uh, our military installations in Qatar. Um, mm -hmm. They all pose their own internal challenges, but I don't see any physical security right. threat in the near term. Um, one last comment, just as something that you know, I, I don't think I'd thought of until I was listening to your testimony. It might have been you, Ambassador Session, it might have been both of you said that ultimately the solution in Yemen is not a military solution. Um, we hear with respect to Syria, we've heard again and again from the administration, the ultimate solution is not a military solution. Even with respect to the battle against ISIL, we've heard that while there's a huge military component, the de-radicalization and other elements of it suggest that the ultimate solution isn't a military solution. It kind of got me thinking about when we say at the front end that the ultimate solution is not a military solution, sort of what is the, over time, the proven utility of use of military assets to promote an end state when we all agree at the front end that the desired end state is not a military solution? So it seems like we're involved in a number of challenging conflicts right now where we say at the front end there's not, there's not a military solution here, but we nevertheless use and are asked to use more military assets to promote the non-military solution. And I'm just kind of doing a little bit of historical card sorting in my brain as to what the proof of the proposition is that military assets, you know, play a major role in promoting the right outcome when we state at the beginning that the right outcome is not a military solution. But that's just something that need to ponder. Uh, thank you to the witnesses. Thank you to the chair. Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here. Um, I want to continue to explore some of the issues that Senator Kane was raising, particularly the, the failure of some of the GCC countries to um, engage more directly in the threat that we believe that the Islamic States poses to um, not just to the West, but to the Middle East as well. And I can't remember, I think it was maybe you, Ambassador Sesh, who who talked about the failure of um, Saudi Arabia to more directly um, put resources into the fight against the Islamic State. To what extent do we think that those people who have funded over the years um, some of the extreme um, fundamentalism, Muslim fundamentalists, are continuing to do that and what, um, how overt are they, and how much do the governments in some of the uh, GCC countries understand if that is going on or not? And I, I would like both of you, if you could, to respond what you know. Senator Shaheen, I think that uh, the issue of terrorist financing in the Gulf has been a longstanding bone of contention between us and our, our Gulf partners. And I think that we've seen several of the states take measures to try to close off the avenues that were available to this. And I don't think it's been government funding, uh, by the way. I think these are individuals. No, I, I understand that. But yeah. certainly in the past, 
the governments of some of those countries have known that that was going on. Absolutely, ma'am. They, they have, and, and they have turned a blind eye to it because it is useful for them domestically to have this. But I think they have closed off some of the avenues. I still think that in, in Kuwait and Qatar, for example, there are issues of terrorist financing. But I think that the Treasury here does a very good job of tracking financial flows around the globe. And I think we've been able to close off some of the opportunities that have been available, not fully by any means. Uh, and it's a complicated, and it will be a permanent conflict that we're going to have to try to resolve. And this goes along with the kind of the de-radicalization. These are the toughest nuts for us to crack uh, in, this, in, this, in this fight against ISIL and Al-Qaeda and others. It's stop the flow of money, stop the flow of ideas, uh, and stop the flow of individuals. Uh, you can do the combat, you can do the, the military side of it, but these other ones take a generation, perhaps, to really close it all off. I would agree uh, with the ambassador. I also think that um, there's a perception by that the Gulf countries are um, somehow trying to have it both ways with ISIL, and, and that is not the case. Uh, at least the GCC primary countries, the Saudi Arabians and the Emiratis, have been unequivocal um, in their horror and disgust at ISIL, particularly um, after the Jordanian pilot right. incident. Um, and in fact, um, uh, to some extent, uh, at least the Emiratis and the, and the Saudis will tell you that some of their support for uh, Egyptian border security has been an attempt to keep ISIL on the Libyan side of the border and not creeping into the Sinai and other places. I think the confusion and where it gets very difficult is in Syria, where there's, uh, where we talk about the GCC as if it were one entity, which is our problem, not so much theirs, where there's uh, differing views among the members as to who's supporting what particular factions of moderate or less than moderate opposition to the Assad regime. Well, to what extent then has the the conflict in Yemen diverted resources that um, GCC countries might have might be um, putting into the fight against the Islamic State because they view the threat from um, Shia and the what's happening in Yemen as um, more important. Is that is that a concern? I think it's got to be a concern. I don't. They, they don't have that many trained, efficient pilots. For example, they have a lot of hardware. The software is a little bit less. You know kind of achieve the point where it wants to be yet. So I think that what we're looking at then is a focus in Yemen, which has been so single-minded that it has distracted them, and it's also sapped resources from their ability to address something like what we see in Syria. And I would love to see Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries now take a more muscular view of what's happening in Syria, given the Russian intervention, and make it very clear that their resources are now going to shift uh, to Syria to make sure that they can push back against what Russia is doing in support of the Assad regime, which is anathema to the Gulf states, and they made it very clear that that's the case. And to what extent do you think that they might, given um, Russia's actions in recent weeks, that they might take another look at what's happening there and possibly divert some of those resources back to Syria? I don't see it happening immediately, ma'am. I think I, I agree with my colleague. For them, it's a priority of, of threats. Um, Saudi Arabia is extremely vulnerable and always has been on that border. and. Uh, particularly now that the Houthis are being pushed northern, um, there is, it, there's an incredible threat as far as they're concerned, while as ISIS uh, down into Syria from a geographic standpoint, but also from a threat level standpoint, is just further away. And, and now there are much other, um, much other uh, 
countries involved in, in Syria and it's a much larger issue. So for them, with their, and particularly it's a manpower issue, I think they'll remain focused on Yemen. But that's not to say that Saudi Arabia and the GCC are, are just involved with military activity. Um, for example, the, by far the largest immigration displaced person issue as a result of Syria are in Jordan and in Lebanon. Mm. Um, and um, both Saudi Arabia and other GCC countries are funneling an incredible amount of money to help with those efforts, particularly in Jordan, where um, basic human care um, is, is beyond the Jordanian government's effort to provide uh, with their uh, Iraqi and Palestinian other issues. Um, this is just, it's something like doubled their population or even more. So they are funding a tremendous amount of um, assistance there. Um, actually, that's not what I've, I have understood from um, people who are dealing with the refugee challenges as the result of Syria. It has been that um, while they committed a certain amount of money um, some time ago, that in the current crisis, that they have not been forthcoming with providing resources to provide further help to Jordan and Lebanon and to the refugees that are fleeing. So is that recent information that you've gotten? No, I know that uh, as in all things, what countries pledge and what they deliver, um, sometimes there is a, a lag. Um, the GCC is not alone on that. I think the, um, the price of oil um, has caused some rethinking as far as budgetary, but I can't, I'm sure that uh, in any case, additional resources are needed. Um, Mr. Chairman, my time is up, but I, I just wanted to go back to a statement that one of you made about the, the Gulf um, GCC countries and their complete opposition to Assad continuing in his position, which has been the United States position and I think the Allies' position with respect to the conflict in Syria. So given the stalemate that exists on the ground in Syria and the unwillingness to um, on the part of the international community to make any progress in that conflict. Is there any reason to think we should re-examine that position and try to figure out how to end that conflict and then figure out what happens to Assad? I think about Bosnia, for example, where um, the priority became ending the conflict and then we went back and tried to um, hold the perpetrators responsible for what they had done. Um, but given where we are and the stalemate there, should we be looking at re-examining the position that we've taken? Senator Shaheen, I can't imagine a circumstance under which the Syrian people, the Sunni majority in Syria, would accept Bashar al-Assad or anyone in the Assad and Mahluf clan at this point as a leadership figure. I think they have burned that bridge a long time ago. I think that he is so discredited and absolutely abhorred inside his own country now. The best we can do is hope he will find a way that he can exit as, as a situation starts to develop where there can be some kind of a national salvation organization or government or something that would be seen as a, as a fair vehicle that would be inclusive and would bring all the parties to the table and not Bashar al-Assad, however. I agree. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Ambassador Sash, I'd like to turn your attention to the rapidly escalating humanitarian crisis in Yemen. 
We have heard very credible reports that it has grown dramatically worse since the start of the Saudi-led military campaign. In six months, almost 3,000 civilians have been killed, over a million displaced, no humanitarian access, especially in the north, and a country on the brink of famine. Certainly, the external military intervention, which has been supported by U.S. logistics, intelligence, and arms supplies, was a large escalation in the violence, and the tragedy there shows every sign of growing worse, much worse. Looking back to last March, it seems like we were on autopilot to reflexively support a Saudi decision to intervene without a full examination of the diplomatic alternatives. What are your thoughts on this now? What might have we done differently in terms of diplomatic action, especially in 2014 and earlier this year to stop the erosion of the transition that was negotiated in 2012? Well, Senator, you've touched on a very sensitive and difficult subject. I think in, in you know, hindsight is 2020, and you look back now to what was happening, as you say, in 2014 when the, the Houthis went into the capital, Sana'a, uh, and basically occupied and took over the reins of government at that time. Uh, that was a moment when I think it should have been clear to all of us that this was a phenomenon that was not going to go away, that they had basically restructured and reorganized the, the country's governance for all intents and purposes, and they were in control. Um, I think at that point there might have been, that was probably the last chance we had, anyone had, to go in and find some kind of a negotiation, because the Houthis had not yet, I don't think, decided to sweep south all the way to the, to the Gulf of Aden. But I do think at that point, President Saleh counseled them, go ahead and finish this job now. And I oh, should we have at that point <coughs> urged the parties to renegotiate the transition right then, uh, rather than this radical escalation, which we have now witnessed over the last uh, couple of years? Honestly, Senator, I don't think the Houthis at that time were ready to negotiate either. I think they were full of what they'd seen as, a, as remarkable ease with which they swept south from their homeland up in Saada in the north, just hard on the Saudi border. So they were prepared at that point to see how far they could go, and they got the encouragement they needed from the former president. Um, this is a very difficult situation to see how you can negotiate this. And but I, what is our greatest leverage right now to uh, try to force a negotiation between the parties? What would you recommend as the best strategy that we adopt to bring the parties to a table? What do you recommend to us? Well, we don't have a lot of leverage. What I would use is the little leverage we have, and as I said earlier, if the Saudis do want a brand new supply of, of modern weaponry to, to take to, to, to bring to bear in Yemen, I think we, we sit down with them and say, if you need this, we need to find out how, what your end game is. How can you bring this to a negotiated end? What can be a resolution that's not gonna depend upon a military solution? And as Senator Kane said earlier, we, you know, you say this at the outset, there's no military solution, but what is going to be a negotiation? What's it going to look like? Who's going to be at the table and who is going to be willing to make a concession? Neither party at the moment, I believe, is prepared to make the important concessions. Okay, and you don't, you, you're not prepared to make a recommendation as to how we might get them to that point? Well, one thing we need to speak more publicly. The White House has recently begun to say that we're disappointed in the fact that the, that the UN envoys talks that were scheduled have not taken place. This is a modest assertion for us to make publicly, but I think it's an important well, indicator. Well, you're saying it's modest. Should it be more robust? Well, in my judgment, yes. All right, what would the words be? Say the words that you want to hear spoken. I'm not sure I'm ready to write press guidance at the moment, Senator, but I do think what we need to say is this is an you're, sure, you're not sure what? I can write press guidance at the moment. 
but I think what we want to say is there's an important critical juncture we've reached here where the outcomes at the moment is going to be more human suffering if we do not find a way to bring the parties to a table. Um, Ambassador, Secretary, I've been an advocate for increased cooperation with our security partners in the Gulf with a particular emphasis on defensive systems. These most certainly include the kind of ballistic missile defense systems such as the Patriot Advanced Capability 3, our PAC-3 missile defense system, and also advanced air and naval defense systems. I fear that our failure to strongly advocate diplomacy in Yemen over the past two years, coupled with our failure to urge restraint in the face of crises last spring, may put the viability of this critical partnership at risk. The Leahy Law prohibits U.S. security assistance and many forms of defense cooperation with forces that have engaged in gross violations of human rights. If reports are accurate, the Saudi indiscriminate targeting in the air campaign and an overly broad naval blockade could well constitute such violations. If the Yemen war grinds on the way it is going uh, uh, to apparently um, uh, happen, uh, we could continue to have indiscriminate targeting in overly broad Saudi naval operation that obstructs humanitarian relief that would constitute gross violations of human rights under the Leahy Law. What is your perspective on the risks this situation could present for long-term viability of our critical security partnerships in the Gulf? Well, Senator, I think that the loss of human life that we've seen so far in Yemen and the, the, the infrastructure destruction, um, in my judgment, borders on a, on a serious violation of international law. Um, I think that what we need to do with our allies, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, is really figure out from them how they see their way out of this. They must have some thought that they've given to how this is going to end. And we need to find out if that is viable, if it's feasible, if we can support that. If we cannot, then I think we need to find a way to start to distance ourselves from a conflict that has no end. And the other, only outcome is more human suffering. Okay. So again, uh, what diplomatic actions would you recommend to ensure respect for human rights in Yemen as this conflict continues, given the role that we're playing in providing logistical support for the Saudis, uh, so that uh, we inject that, those sets of values into uh, our relationships with the Gulf states. Given the conflict at the moment and the fact that it is ongoing, I don't, I don't advocate a public discussion of this issue. I think that the Saudis and our Gulf allies have proven over the years that they respond best to a private conversation to a, a sense of a friend coming to speak to them and, and to provide counsel and advice, but not in a public eye where there's a finger-wagging attachment to it. And so I think we need to be very cautious if we're going to use diplomacy on this, that it is private, it is forceful, and it is straightforward to the Saudis. I don't think we want to do a nuanced kind of a demarche. We want to be very clear to them about what we think the threats and the risks are that they're running at the moment. May I just ask, when you say that, you're saying that you want a nuanced response from our government. No, no, I don't want a nuanced. Oh, you don't? No, I do not. I want something straightforward and forceful. But private. 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 Now, would it help if this committee, unconstrained by the diplomatic relationship that the United States has with Saudi Arabia, what if this committee 
spoke loudly about what we expect from Saudi Arabia. Would that be helpful? I think it's always helpful. I always, when I was in the field, I always found it was very helpful if I could go to the government of any country and say, this is what my Congress, what my Senate feels. You. you know, my hands are getting tied on this. You need to move so I can get this Congress away from this. Yeah, and I, I think that's an important component to this right now because there's an obvious catastrophe unfolding there. <clears throat> and uh, our silence ultimately is complicity. Uh, to the actions that are taking place, and I think it's time for us to stand up and demand from Saudi and others a diplomatic resolution of, of this issue in a telescope time frame. We thank you both for testifying today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Y'all have been outstanding witnesses. I've had numbers of senators walk by and, and thank us for the hearing because of your testimony, so I want to thank you both for being here. And just make an observation, and this is not meant in any way to, to just be a pejorative statement, but um, I, I don't think the administration itself uh, is committed to anything specifically in the Middle East. I mean, I think it's obviously a very light touch, except for the nuclear agreement with Iran. They were very committed to that. But it appears to me that what's developing is uh, a situation where you've got Russia and Iran and the Shia countries. I mean, Iraq really, let's face it, uh, Iraq appears to me when I'm there to be a country that we're making better for Iran. I mean, it's just a very different place than it was a few years ago. And it appears that uh, where we are is, uh, you know, basically uh, in, a, in a very light-handed way, although it might get stronger over time, but we've created a Sunni-dominant sphere for us to operate in. And, you know, in the past we were trying to keep Iraq whole. Obviously, uh, we're playing almost no role in that today, um, except, uh, again, continued Shia domination there. So um, am I right? I mean, it appears to me that, you know, the GCC and the Sunni countries are the places where we can develop deeper ties. We've had deeper ties there for some time. We're sort of, uh, you know, abdicating, if you will, the role of, of keeping the other nation states or countries together and, and basically creating a, a very one-sided relationship in the region. Is there any, can y'all respond to that? Senator, I think um, that's exactly it. And it's the failure of U.S. leadership or even perceived leadership that's causing some of these conflicts to not only involve outside parties um, to a much greater extent than are probably necessary, um, as evidenced by the fact that the Houthis, we don't even know if they'll come to the table and whether that will even count because no one knows what influence they're getting from Iran as far as negotiating a diplomatic resolution. And it is this light touch um, that has been interpreted by both our friends and our enemies in the region as um, us not being involved, us not being committed, and um, as one of the senators pointed out, an implicit hope that Iran will actually increase its role in the region at the expense of our traditional Arab allies. Mm -hmm. You want to speak to that, Ambassador? Yeah, yes, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I would like to speak to that because I do think that we have been able to begin this process of reconciliation and reassurance with our Gulf allies who were very much concerned about our long-term staying power in the region. And I think what's, what's come out of Camp David and that people were dissatisfied with some of the results because they were not concrete enough, but I think it is, it is a real reassertion of the fact that we are going to be involved in a strategic partnership with the countries of the Arab Gulf region uh, going forward. There is no question in my mind that this is a, a cornerstone of our international foreign policy in the Middle East to have the Gulf allies 
with us, working with us, and trying to come to resolution of these very deep and, and, and unsettling crises. So I think that there's a way we can do this. I think introducing Iran into this equation is complicating our ability to reassure them. But I don't think it needs to be a fatal blow to this process. I think we need to make sure that we reassure them Iran can play a role, and we will definitely monitor what that role is to the extent we can with them, working with them in partnership. This is not an easy solution to anything, and it's probably not a satisfactory answer to your question. But I think what we have is such a difficult kind of a tapestry to look at there. You don't always see how it's going to appear until you step back a little bit and get a better feel for it. And that's where we are now. We're so close to our allies, so close to Iran, so close to these issues. I'm having a hard time, as I think the Obama administration is, to say this is what this is going to look like at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. I think Senator Cardin may have a question. but I, I, And it seems to me the Yemen involvement that we've had, I know that... Uh, Madam Secretary spoke to the fact that it was in our national interest, but it, it feels more to me like a, we had to, we did what we did to demonstrate that we were with the Saudis and our other GCC friends. It was that that drove us to do what we do. We did not necessarily uh, some type of national interest that we thought was paramount. Any, I know you've said both were apparent in our activities, but with this administration. It appears to me it was more of a show because of what was happening with, uh, with Iran and the negotiations. Do you want to speak to that? With this administration, I do think the overtly political was uh, tantamount. As you are aware, we've had some limited U.S. forces in Yemen um, that continued um, and I think those were a signal previous to the Gulf involvement that we were exercising our protection of our national interests, um, but certainly other interests prevailed more prominently with this administration, and those are the support of our Gulf allies. Senator Cardin. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I just would take exception with the United States having a light touch here. I would not call it a light touch, our involvement in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, the Middle East generally, G GCC with our military presence. Uh, we're actively engaged. It's not an easy answer. I, uh, Senator Markey's comments about the humanitarian crisis is right on target. Uh, we, we had a hearing on the humanitarian crisis in Syria and the number of people who are, cannot be reached. And today we added to that the humanitarian crisis in Yemen and the number of people who are not being uh, dealt with. And, 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 and Senator Kane was correct when he challenged, why are we using military? I don't think he was questioning our military being there, but what is the role of our military, I think, was what Senator Kane was talking about. And we want to see our military. It's got to be engaged there because it's an important part of our overall strategy. But we can't win a, a, a military victory in these countries, and we, we know that. We have to establish a government that represents all the people, and that's what we tried to do in Iraq, and we've made some progress in Iraq in, in moving that forward. Uh, we certainly need a political solution in S Syria, and, and it must be without Assad. I agree with that completely. Assad has no legitimacy, and uh, we need to transition to a government that can have the confidence of its people. In Yemen, we've got to get the parties together to talk about how they, their future country will will represent the will of all of its people. And I, I, Mr. Ambassador, I particularly appreciated your assessment that it's really an internal fight going on. And although there are external issues, but it's more of an internal matter that has to be resolved. So 
I guess my point is that there's no simple answer here. The United States is critically important. And I think about, you know, certainly there are other players in the GCC areas, and there's other players in, 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 that are operating, including Russia. But there's only one country that has the capacity to not only be involved, but to represent the universal values that can give us lasting peace in a region, and that's the United States. And that's why it's so critically important that we try to get this right. There's no easy answer, uh, but I thought today's uh, discussion I found very, very helpful, and I, I thank both of our witnesses. I cannot let that stand. I, I, serving my, I cannot imagine how anybody would think uh, uh, the steps that you and I encouraged to happen in Syria that didn't were indications of anything other than an incredibly light touch. Um, I oppose what we did in Libya, but to go in and take out a leader and leave it um, in disarray as we have done is incredibly light touch. And uh, I think much of what we are doing at present, I'm talking about just in the last several years, is really more about face saving and acting as if we're doing something than really trying to drive an outcome. And I just can't imagine, but there's anybody in our country that thinks differently than that, but maybe there's one. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, with that, uh, if you would, uh, there'll be questions until the close of business Thursday, if y'all would answer those as responsibly as you could. And uh, we thank you very, very much for being here. We thank you for your service to our country in various positions. And with that, our meeting is adjourned.